Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, December 8th, we're studying Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. Isaiah gives a striking picture of the work of the coming Christ. The desert flows with water, sickness gives way to strength, and even death is undone. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us returning guest, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Pastor Wolfmuller serves at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thank you. Hey, I didn't know this was worldwide KFUO. That puts the pressure on. Yeah, no pressure. But but you, you have a worldwide Bible study there at St. Paul. So Yeah, but that's yeah. more tongue-in-cheek. <laughs> yes, worldwide KFUO. Talking about Isaiah 35 this morning for this series that takes us through the various Old Testament readings during the season of Advent. Isaiah 35 shows up in the lectionary in series A, which is actually the series we just came out of. And it shows up on the third Sunday in Advent, which is the pink candle Sunday, the or or rose-colored. My vicarage congregation actually had rose-colored vestments, and they were very particular that it needed to be rose and not pink colored. You know, that's the thing. You're like, hey, I don't know. No, no pink for me. I only wear rose. It's like, well, either way. What about mauve? <laughs> what color is mauve? Is that close to it? I, I think that's more of a purplish, but... <laughs> There's three, there's four weeks in Advent, right? And this is sort of the idea in Lent also, which has seven weeks and it's a season of fasting. And so you got to have a little bit of respite before the end. And so this third Sunday in Advent, it used to be called Gaudate. It was the, it was the respite Sunday where, where you, you sort of loosen up on the, you relax the feast for a little bit so you can intensify that last week. So we've got that bit of a, a rejoicing theme here going on, similar in Lent. I think, it's, is it the fourth Sunday in Lent that works the same way? I think so, yeah. So the idea is to give you this, this moment of joy, of respite in the midst of a penitential season. This text shows up on that Sunday, again, in series A of the three-year lectionary. It's Isaiah 35, 1 to 10, which is the whole chapter of Isaiah 35. And we've been bouncing around a little bit here on Sharper Iron through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah shows up several times in the season of Advent in the various lectionaries. So sometimes it can be a bit challenging to find our bearings in the book of Isaiah. As we get ready to study chapter 35 today, where do we find ourselves within the book, within the prophet's ministry? Where are we going to place this text? What do we need to know going in? Sure. Well, it's and this is particularly tricky with Isaiah because he has such a long ministry, probably over 50 years. There was three or four kings during which Isaiah was the prophet and some huge world events. So Isaiah was the prophet in Jerusalem, down in the south, when the Assyrians were destroyed, uh, when the Assyrians destroyed Samaria in the north in, in the year 722. Uh, and and he was there in Jerusalem when the when the Assyrians surrounded Jerusalem and came to attack him, and then the Lord wiped them out in one night with an angel killing a hundred and some thousand soldiers of the Assyrians. It's an amazing story. And the Lord protected Jerusalem for another 150 years until the Babylonians came and exercised the Lord's discipline and judgment on the holy city, 586. This section, Isaiah 35, is in the third major division in Isaiah. Probably chapters 28 to 35 form the part three of Isaiah. And, and there are the prophecies emanating from the last five years of the King Ahaz and the first 18 years of the King Hezekiah. So this comes from about 724 to 701 BC. That's the that's a time frame that we're looking at. So this very significant amount of time, it's during the destruction of again, the north and the attack on Jerusalem. This probably comes right at the end of it. And and the Lord is saying, hey, look, I can execute whoever I want to execute. That's what he's been talking about all the way through chapter 20, uh, 33, 34. The Edomites are going to be destroyed. But 
I can save whoever I want to save. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. That's one of the chief scripture texts of the Old Testament to describe who the Lord is. If I want to save you, I can save you. And chapter 35 talks about that saving work of the Lord, how the Lord can save and he will save a people for himself through the ministry of the Messiah. So it's a beautiful passage about the New Testament church and about the gifts that Jesus brings in his ministry, his suffering, his death, his resurrection. The the contrast with chapter 34, which I know we won't read that today, is, is very striking. As I read 34, you know, you talked about the destruction of the Edomites that's there, which I mean, it's like chapter 34 is like the Lord lays waste to anything and everything, it seems. And then you're going to get this picture that he's going to rebuild anything and everything. It's the imagery that Isaiah uses. And this is true throughout the book. But in these two chapters particularly, it's just so striking. What are some of those images we need to be looking out for to be putting those pictures in our minds? Well, yeah, that's right. Because it, this, uh, we'll want to remember, for example, you remember the song of Hannah, which Mary picks up as well when she learns that she's going to have the, she's going to be pregnant with, with the Messiah, that the Lord exalts the lowly. But he casts down the haughty. And so so the Lord is, is the one who goes through this great reversal. Those who are prideful and who are lifted up, they will be they'll be laid flat. And those who are humble and 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 weak, they will be lifted up. And especially the, the language that Isaiah will use, and a lot of the prophets will use this as well, is the language of it's a it's a topological preaching it's the it's the difference between a garden and a desert <laughs> so you're going to you're going to have a forest it's going to be cut down you're going to have a you're going to have a, a city it's going to become a waste place you're going to have gardens. It's, it's going to become dry, a wilderness. And on the other hand, the wilderness will overflow with with water. It'll become a place of lushness and growth and life. And so that picture between the forest, uh, the the garden, and the desert is uh, is what's at, really at work here. So we'll talk about the the jackals, the wild goats. You you used to have cities, and now instead you have these, you know, you have mountain goats and and larynxes jumping around the jackals running around the rocks and owls and all this sort of stuff. So so what you had formerly formerly inhabited and thought you'd conquered is reclaimed by the wild. But the wild place, then this is the great reversal, will be running with rivers and lush gardens and water. It really is a, a beautiful picture. In, in my mind, uh, you know those time-lapse videos that you'll see like on nature programs, like on PBS or something like that, where, where it shows how the seasons change all at once, you know, and you get to see, say, I don't know, a whole year in about a minute. That's mm-hmm. kind of the picture that I've always had in my mind for this text as the Lord makes that transformation just like that, because now the Christ has come, the Messiah is here. His promise has been fulfilled and that great reversal takes place because of him. That's the picture I've always had in my mind. Yeah. And it runs throughout the prophets and it's an echo. We should hear in this an echo of the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. And even, I mean, it, just to think that the Lord, you know, the whole arc of the scriptures is out of the garden and back into it. So the Bible, the whole Bible culminates with this beautiful picture of the garden and the lamb is in the center of it and the tree and there's a river and there's a tree and its leaves are healing the nations. And so, and the tree of life is there and we're eating from it and the, and the fruit never runs out. So the whole story arc of the Bible is the expulsion and return uh, to the Lord's garden. And so when we hear this kind of language in the, and the language of the cultivated field versus the wilderness, this should be also in our mind. I mean, Moses preached this way when he said, you're going to go into the land and you're going to live in houses you didn't build and you're going to eat grapes that you didn't plant and you're going to have grain that you didn't sow. And then the prophets will warn and says, you're going to build a house, but not live in it. You're going to plant vineyards, but not reap in it. And then when the prophets want to talk about the church and the everlasting kingdom that comes to the Christians, it says, you're going to plant and eat. You're going to build and dwell. You're going to you're going to uh, sow and reap. In fact, the reapers catch up to the sowers. In the, can you imagine that? In the resurrection, that's the picture of the resurrection, is that you're planting the seeds and it's growing so fast that the reapers are right behind you saying, get get, get moving, you're, you're too slow for us. This is a beautiful picture. So it's all all this sort of garden and, and imagery of, of, of life in, on the farm, and it runs all the way through the prophets. It's beautiful. 
So let's see what Isaiah has to say then in Isaiah chapter 35, the way he picks up this language. The prophet writes, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak knees and make firm the feeble, sorry, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With a recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That is Isaiah <laughs> chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. All right. Good stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. It's just beautiful. It's a stunning text. I mean, you know, it's, some of these things, it's when we hear a text like this, we remember why we always have to go to the Bible. Because if we just, you know, if we're trying to get our, our bearings in the world by just, you know, you, you don't hear anything like this in the news. I'll tell you what. And you can't see anything like this just by going outside and looking at the stars or the rocks that the Lord is going to do this work. Oh, that he comes to us not with with judgment, but with kindness to rescue us from everything. Uh, it's just fantastic. It's just beautiful, beautiful stuff. So take us into those opening images in verses one and two. That's where we get the language of nature, the language of desert becoming lush, uh, grassland. I don't even know the right forest. Just a beautiful picture here of this wilderness, the dry land now becoming incredibly fruitful. Take us into those opening images. Like Lebanon and Carmel and Sharon. So Lebanon was famous for its huge, big cedar trees. Uh, they must have been really something. I guess someone told me recently that there's a couple left, couple cedars of Lebanon, like a few little patches of forest where you can see these huge, big, majestic cedar trees that are so famous in the Bible. So Lebanon was this rich forest. They were sending wood down for the construction of the temple to Solomon. This how. I mean, that's like the best wood that you can find anywhere. And then, and Carmel is this mountain. That's where, oh, who Elijah was fighting with the prophets of Baal, Mount Carmel. Uh, it's, this, it's this really sort of, the two valleys sort of run together and it's, and it, it juts out into the sea a little bit by Haifa. And so you have this, this really lush area uh, there geographically. And the, and the Lord is referring to those to talk about how Jerusalem will be restored and and we 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 don't want to miss the image first of the desert becoming a forest the wasteland becoming a a, a lush garden that's full of life and so forth we don't want to miss that picture we want to see it really fully and then realize that that's what the lord is talking about in the church so, so the rivers of living water, which Jesus talks about, that flow out of the heart of the Christian, this is a picture of the Holy Spirit bringing the Lord's word. Isaiah will preach in a few chapters, like the, like the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth and doesn't return void. So the Lord's word that goes out of his mouth. So when the Lord's word comes, it, it cultivates this life where there's, where there's death and sticks and wilderness and sand and snakes then all of a sudden the rain comes and now there's this lushness and, and richness and abundance and life and it's glorious and 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 this is the great reversal again because uh because jerusalem was warned about their faithlessness, about their idolatry, about their disobedience to the Lord's word. And when that happens, the, the city becomes a wasteland. But when that when the when the Lord establishes his kingdom, the New Testament church, there's this abundance 
abundance and overflowing of his grace. And we live now we, Timothy, live in this in this lushness in the New Testament church. We should understand that because we look around, it seems to us like we're in the desert, like we're all alone. There's no, but no, we, we live in the lushness of the, of the Lord's word. We have the Lord's word. We have it in this, in such an abundance that it's overwhelming sometimes. Hmm. So as you're talking here, are, are we to understand this text then in, in two ways? You, you brought up Revelation earlier with its pictures, particularly at the end of the tree of life, the river of life that's there, the fruit that we'll be eating every month because it's always in season. And, and it seems you've got a similar picture here of physical things. And as we go forward, particularly in verses five and six, there are going to be some physical things that Jesus quite literally did. Mm-hmm. So are we to understand these words here at the beginning in, in two ways then as something that the Lord will be, will bring to fulfillment in a very physical way at the end, but also right now he's doing through his word in the church. I think we should understand it th- first as the church. This is a prophecy of the New Testament church, but that the prophecy that the New Testament church is is f- complete on the day of the resurrection. So that the 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 literal fulfillment, I suppose, of the valley of the of the wilderness being fruitful is in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting, which will come on the last day. But that should not be understood apart from the Church of the New Testament founded on the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. There was um <clears throat> It reminds me of a picture, uh, some movie somewhere. Maybe you know the movie where the, it was a is a crucifixion of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus was flowing down from the cross. And as the blood of Jesus flowed along, flowers were sprouting up all around it. Now this this is a it's a beautiful that probably didn't happen, but that's a picture of the fact that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And his resurrection does not just mean our resurrection, but the restoration of the entire cosmos so that so that we will be resurrected to eternal life on the last day, but that the world itself will be remade in resurrected glory when the trumpet sounds on the last day comes. But I don't want to see it as interpreting it in two ways. I think we should just see it as the kingdom uh, and the glory that is promised here begins with the resurrection of Jesus. Well, maybe even before that, it begins with the ministry of Jesus and it ends on the last day, just like we should understand every miracle of Jesus. I mean, when Jesus heals the blind man or when he heals the, the leper or the lame or the the paralytic or the, the demon possessed or whatever he's doing there in his ministry, what he will do for all people on the last day, all, all his whole entire church, all those who belong to him. And so the, the beginning, the, the miracles begun in the ministry of Jesus are, are just a small foretaste of the, of the day of the redemption of, of the world that is to come on the last day. So then if, if I want to see the glory of the Lord, to see the majesty of our God as verse two ends, then the place that I need to go is to, to the church where I will hear the word. And that is where I will actually see the glory of the Lord. Yep. That's right. That's for us. That's the phenomenon of it. But really the, the, the being of it is the opposite. So we would say the church is nothing other than the place where the glory of the Lord is known. <laughs> so for the, for us, we have to say, well, if I want to see the Lord's glory, I got to go to church. But for, we understand theologically that that's the very definition of the church is the place where the Lord is manifesting his glory. And surprise, surprise, the glory of the Lord is the crucified body of Jesus. That's what that's what the Lord himself says. Now now the son of man shall be glorified. Now he will be lifted up for all the world to see. So that the glory of the Lord Oof, boy, this is really something. The glory of the Lord is nothing other than the crucifixion of Jesus. And it takes spiritual eyes to see it because to the eyes of flesh, there's nothing uglier than this man crucified. I mean, even when we understand him, we understand a little bit of it, that he was crucified unjustly, that he was undeserving of that, that he was not a criminal who deserved to be executed. That makes it even uglier to the eyes of flesh until the Lord cracks open our eyes to see that, no, all these things are done for you. And so he, he gives us eyes to see that that this is the most beautiful the most glorious, the most profoundly um, uh, elegant, 
and exalted picture of who God is, is the dead man Jesus on the cross. This text on Advent 3 of Series A gets paired with John the Baptist in prison <laughs> in, in Matthew chapter 11. Which yeah. It, it, when, you, when you put those things together and recognizing that the, the glory of the Lord is his crucified body, it seems that, that John is struggling with that fact there in prison and Jesus needs to preach the good news to him so that he will believe just like we need that same preaching as well. Yeah. Remember how Jesus, the first time he quoted Isaiah, he said, the prisoners are set free. And then he closes the scroll and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your eyes. And and he, so he sends John in prison, sends his disciples to Jesus. And I think he might be hoping to hear that same sermon again. You know, hey, what about, remember that part about setting the prisoners free? But instead of quoting that Isaiah text, Jesus quotes the another, this text. He says, the, 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 the lame are healed and the and the blind see and 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 this sort of thing so go tell john what what you've seen john is despairing well at our, our be, i think the best reading of the text is that john is despairing there in prison going through the dark night of the soul as as herod has, has him locked up in the basement it's going to cut his head off pretty soon and uh and he he must wonder you know if the lord is the deliverer then why am i not delivered but it wasn't the office of john to be delivered in fact <laughs> poor john has to be in the office of prophet which means you get you got to be killed that's that's what that's what the Pharisees and, and the unbelieving world and the tyrants of the world do to the prophets. They murder them, like Jesus talked about. And they're blessed in that death. But I think it's amazing to me, uh, Timothy, when I think about it, that John is the only person that Jesus lets stay dead. Any, anybody else that dies, Jesus raises them. But he lets John stay dead because even though he's the greatest born of woman, he has to be least in the kingdom of heaven. It was, it was not for the prophets to see with their own eyes the death and resurrection of Jesus. So John has to go before Jesus. Uh, and so Jesus can say that even though he's the greatest, the least in the kingdom is greater than he because the least of the kingdom can confess that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate and suffered, died, and buried, and on the third day rose again. Things that John longed to look into and that we all know with such great clarity, even the children. Well, and, and so then when, when Jesus quotes from Isaiah 35 to John, who is there in prison, you know, as, as he gives the answer, John's asked, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? And, and I've always you know, understood it. Well, the, Jesus says, yes, I am the one who is to come. But, but even more than that, then he's also reminding John of the promise of resurrection. John, you're going to die as a prophet. You will be martyred. But I will, I mean, to maybe take it to verses three and four. You know, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save. He's not going to do it right now, John. You're going to die in prison right now. But resurrection is coming. And there's Jesus again, preaching that good news to John. This is, it sounds strange to us. That's 100% right. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. But it sounds strange to us because we are not used to having such fierce enemies. Well, I mean, we have them, that we have the world and the devil and we have our own sinful flesh. But for whatever reason, we don't often feel the bitterness of the fight that is going on around us. We think that life is easy for us. It's one of the temptations of affluence, I believe. And so we don't realize how constantly opposed and mistreated the Christian is. And so whenever the Lord talks about having vengeance and and the day of judgment being a glorious day where the Lord's will is manifest against all his enemies, we kind of, we're sort of taken aback. In fact, I think this happens when we read the Psalms because you can't understand the Psalms without knowing that you have incredibly dangerous, fierce enemies, people, or at least things who hate you and hate the fact that you believe in Jesus, hate the fact that you belong to God and you're a child of the heavenly father and you're going to live forever in heaven and are plotting constantly to undo that faith and trust and everything good. But that is the case for the Christian. We do have those enemies. And so part of the, the great day of the Lord's um, work is not just that he saves us, but that he destroys our enemies. It's not just that he redeems us, but that he brings justice on those who were fighting against his name and his kingdom. And so the gospel has a flip side. You, you know, this is, I think, maybe the easiest place to see this is uh, in, the, in Luther's exposition of the Lord's Prayer in the large catechism, where he talks about 
every petition being in opposition to something. So when we pray that the Lord's will would be done, we're praying that the, uh, that the devil's will would not be done. Or when we pray that uh, uh, that the, the Lord's kingdom would come, we're praying that the kingdom of the world and our flesh and the devil would not come, that everything that the Lord does is opposed. And so the Lord's work is always opposed. And so his day is a day of vengeance. Now, this means there's a lot here, but this, is, this also means that vengeance doesn't belong to us. Like St. Paul says, leave room for wrath. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, as, as Moses taught us in Deuteronomy, that, that we are not supposed to defend ourselves, but the Lord will be our defender. And we can rest in that, in life and in death. You know, if we're in prison and our heads are being asked for on a platter by some wicked second wife or whatever, we don't have to worry. The, the vengeance belongs to the Lord, and we can commend ourselves into his hands. Yeah, there's so much there to, to pick up on, which I think we will on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, December 8th. We're studying Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. We've got Pastor Brian Wolfmuller with us. He serves at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. Pastor Wolfmuller, prior to the break, we were looking at verse 4, particularly in the vengeance of God, the recompense that he brings when he comes. And we're talking a little bit about how we don't always recognize the fierce enemies that we have in this life. How do we recognize those fierce enemies? And how is such recognition helpful to us as we want to take comfort from the text we've got here in Isaiah 35? That so you you just reminded me of um, there's this great little kind of funny section again in the large catechism I think I mentioned that before so everybody by the way should pause this show and go read Luther's large catechism real quick and then come back so it's so great I don't know a better book outside the scriptures but than that and and he has this question in the Lord's Supper about what should we do if we don't feel our need to go to the Lord's Supper. Mm. And he says, okay, here's three things you should do. The first thing you should do is you should reach uh, reach and touch your body and see if you still have a body. <laughs> see if you still have flesh and that you're not a ghost. And if you still have a body, then you should believe what the Bible says about it, that the flesh is wicked above, uh, above all things, that out of the flesh comes all sorts of evil desires and so forth, that the, that the flesh lusts against the spirit and so forth. So you should believe what the Bible says about your sinful flesh. And then you should open your eyes and see if you're still in the world. I don't know what the alternative would be, floating in outer space or something like that. But if you're still in the world, then you should believe what the Bible says about the world, that it's wicked, that it's the enemy of God, that it hated the Lord Jesus first, and it'll hate you as well, that we are not of this world and so forth, that the world is very evil. And then, if that's not enough, you should open the Bible and see what it says about the devil, that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for whom he may devour, that we resist him and he flees from us, but that he is a, he is a tyrannical enemy the prince of the power of the air, that he shoots his fiery arrows at us. Can you imagine? It reminds me of that scene in one of the Toy Story movies where they all, all the toys climbed under the cones and they walked across the street and they kept making all these wild patterns and cars are crashing into each other. And it was all these near misses and they, whew, whew, and they just were being barely missed getting run over. And they made it to the other side and they said, no problem. Just because they didn't see all the danger they were in, they thought they were safe. That's how it is with us. I mean, the devil is shooting his arrows at us constantly, and we don't we don't see him, so we think we're safe. So, so Luther says you should you should check that you still have flesh, and you should check that you're still in the world, and you should remember what the Bible says about the devil and about all these things, and realize that you that we are in desperate need of the Lord's help, and that ought to impel us 
in, in Luther's application, to go to the Lord's Supper. It should impel us to repent of our sins. It should re- uh, compel us to, to hear the Lord's word and to go to church and hear the preaching of God's word and, and to rejoice in his truth because these three enemies, the flesh, the world, and the devil, are constantly fighting against the Lord and his gifts and, his, and the peace that Jesus wants to deliver in our hearts. And those three enemies then would be the reason that we would have the weak hands and the feeble knees and the anxious heart that Isaiah talks about. The, that's the, I mean, this again, to, to use, we're, we're looking forward to the resurrection throughout this text, but the weak hands, the feeble knees, the anxious heart, the Lord is the one who resolves these things, who strengthens us through his word that in that glory that it reveals now in the church against these, these enemies that would attack us and, and bring these things upon us. Yeah, that's right. And you could also have Assyrians <laughs> or whatever. I mean, you can have other enemies too. You can actually have neighbors that hate you and are trying to poison your cats or whatever. So that's also a possibility. But even in, I mean, this is the sort of baseline opposition that every Christian faces. And then it just gets worse from there. You know, people, you, you, you get added on enemy after enemy after enemy, but that's the baseline. And so we know that, that the Christian life is always opposed. Remember what Jesus tells the parable of the the, uh, the man going out to sow seed and the birds are after some and the and the uh, the weeds are after others and the sun is after others. I mean, the, the Christian faith, the, the word of God is always being opposed from every different direction. And that and we feel it. We feel that opposition. And, and we should remember it, though. And 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 our temptation is to say, well, I've got to go overthrow my opposition. If someone's going to be my enemy, then I have to go and overthrow them. But when Isaiah preaches the Lord's word, he says, you be strong. And that being strong does not look like executing justice that strength does not look like overcoming the enemies the strength of the christian looks like enduring opposition while trusting the lord commending yourself to to the faithful creator who does good that's what the strength and the courage of the christian life is behold your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of your God. He will come and save you, which is one of the reasons why we keep praying, come Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Because when the Lord comes, he will come and rescue us, and he will come and have vengeance on the enemies of the church, or the enemies of the gospel. The, the, the flesh and the world and the devil will will be thrown into the lake of fire and we'll be done with them. Oh, what a relief that will be. And the more we feel that pressure, the more we long for that coming of the Lord uh, and his vengeance and his His executing justice. The writer to the Hebrews picks up verse 3 here in Isaiah chapter 35. He picks it up in chapter 12 of his epistle. Uh, he says, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, which which certainly sounds like a reference to this text. But he, he does it in the context of the Lord's discipline. So, so can, can we connect the attacks that we face in this life and enduring them with patience, knowing that the Lord will come and he'll be the one who will execute the vengeance on the last day. Well, how, how does that connect to this matter of the Lord's discipline and receiving it as discipline from his hand? Yeah, well, if, especially when we remember that the Lord is after the devil, that the Lord is after the world, but that the w- Lord is also after our own sinful flesh. So we remember the part of the Lord's work of, of, of judgment is towards us, towards that part of us that we despise, towards our towards our sinful flesh. So, so the Lord will chasten us in that. He'll discipline us as children, which is hard because he's he's also, you know, I mean, this this whole chastening will eventually end with our physical death, which again is not easy. But that that the Lord has to the Lord has to really put us through a press. In order to rescue us from from these from the chains of our sinful flesh, that's not. To, I know. Don't mistake that for the chains of our body, because we will be in our bodies forever in the resurrection. The flesh is not the body. That when we say the flesh, we're talking about that that corrupted sinful nature that we inherit from Adam. That's accidental to our humanity. In fact, it's detrimental to our being human. The Lord has to has to squeeze that out, and He does it through all the troubles of this life, and at last, through death, he delivers us uh, from sin. That distinction between the sinful flesh on the one hand and then the body, I think is is pretty evident here in Isaiah as well. The text continues in verses 5 and 6 in ways that the Lord actually 
renews the body, the effects of sin upon the body, that eyes would be blind, that ears would be deaf, that legs wouldn't work or tongues wouldn't sing, the Lord actually undoes all of these things and and renews our bodies, makes them work in the way that he intended. It is quite beautiful. And this should be understood, I think, both literally and as well as spiritually. Jesus did open the eyes of the blind, and he did unstop the deaf ears, and he did cause the lame to leap and, and, and loose the tongue of those who could not speak. So Jesus did all these things, but he does these things for all of us. He, we, we are the enlightened ones. Remember, this is the point of the of the healing of the blind man. It's uh, John chapter 9, right? When he heals the blind man and he, Jesus is making the point that the Pharisees are really blind. So this blind man could see who Jesus was, but the Pharisees who had 2020 vision, you know, they could see fine. They were totally missing the truth of what was right in front of them, that the deliverer was there standing in the flesh. And so Jesus is also opening our eyes. He's opening our ears to hear the glory of his word. He's loosing our tongue to sing his praises so that so that the baptized have all of these spiritual gifts given to us now, right now. I mean, the, the very fact that you and I, Timothy, can can extol the Lord's name and rejoice in, in his gifts and teach these things, this is, this is not something that we have the capacity to do as sinful human beings. The Lord has to redeem us, redeem our minds and our mouths to be able to speak these things. And so he has done it. It's a miracle of the, of the New Testament. Jesus would always say things like, he who has eyes to see, let him see. He who has ears to hear, let them hear and everybody's going to say we all have eyes and ears but you but not to see and to hear the things that he's doing this is a gift that comes from the holy spirit and i think we need to recapture this language that the christians are the enlightened ones we say it in the in the creed when we confess the catechism i believe that the holy spirit has called gathered enlightened and sanctified the whole christian church on earth so that the christians are the enlightened ones the ones with eyes that have been opened to see those most important and fundamental truths that the that the rest of the world is blind to namely that we're sinners in desperate need of the Lord's mercy and that we have that mercy in Christ Jesus. We, we see those things and the world does not. So, so the, I mean, how, how would that be just to think of ours, to think uh, that for the Christian to think I am enlightened. What, what do we normally think of with that word is like some sort of Buddhist monk sitting under some incense somewhere in a mountain or something that's enlightened. No, that's great. That's, that's a deeper blindness in true enlightenment is to see Moses standing there with the 10 commandments and then to see Jesus standing there with his pierced hands raised in blessing. That is, that is what uh, the, the open eyes that the Holy spirit gives the matter of blindness, particularly in the book of Isaiah and elsewhere in the scriptures is, is often connected to idolatry that those who are blind are those who are worshiping <laughs> the false God. There's that fantastic yeah. passage in Isaiah 44, where, where Isaiah makes fun of those who would make idols. You, you take a block of wood and you cut it in half and you use half of it to build your God and you worship it and then you burn the rest of it to mm-hmm. keep yourself warm. Mm-hmm. And, and that, I mean, as you said, that's that's not enlightenment. That's, that's stupidity, which is the point Isaiah is making. It, it, the true enlightenment is to see who the one true God is, who in fact, I mean, and this is another point that, that Isaiah will make and elsewhere in the scriptures, I think it's Psalm 115, that idols, they can't see. Idols can't hear. And, and you become like the God that you worship. Yeah. And so if you, become, if you worship an idol, you won't be able to see or hear either. But when yeah. you worship the one true God who does see and who does hear, then you can really see and you can really hear. This is so great. I was hoping you knew the reference because I always forget the, the passage, the, the psalm, but it is Psalm 115, which is so great. So King David probably says, but, but our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but don't speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. Those who make them are like them. (laughs) 
and so is everyone who trusts in them. So that, you know, the Lord had made us in his own image and his own likeness. And then we go about the business of making gods in our own likeness. And then we become shaped after the likeness of our own gods. We, we start to look. It's like those pictures of the dog owners and they look like they're dogs or this weird thing where husband and wife, if they live together long enough, they start to look like each other, carries you know, hoping that that doesn't happen to everybody. But this is, you know, you worship, you you start to become like who you worship. So you worship Baal and you become this power hungry, lusty sort of thing, survival the fittest, or you worship Molech and you, and you become angry. You worship money and you become flighty and worrisome. You worship yourself and you become narcissistically involved. I mean, you just start to, be, you start to absorb the likeness of the, of your idol. And so you worship these idols that are dumb and deaf and mute and you yourselves become spiritually blind and deaf and unable to say anything or go anywhere or do anything it's really profound whereas when we worship the one who is the one who is eternal the one who creates and redeems the one who has life then we we start to to reflect his own his own glory like the moon reflecting the light of the sun we begin just begin so incompletely, but we begin to reflect his holiness, his compassion, his love, his life, his mercy. That's the picture of worship in the New Testament. Is that is that the Lord's what the 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 Lord's character starts to reflect off of us? That's an ama- what an amazing truth. Saint Paul talks that way in Second Corinthians three and four, I think, about how how we're being transformed into the glory because we have the unveiled face, not like Moses, but but when we see him as he is, we, that glory starts to reflect. And I think it would be important then again to tie that back into what the Lord's glory actually is, lest we get a false idea of what our glory might look like. But it but it is a glory that will often manifests itself in suffering in this life and enduring patiently waiting for the resurrection, which Isaiah is preaching. That's right. That's right. The, we, when we start to look more and more like Jesus, that doesn't mean we get closer and closer to sitting on some sort of Egyptian throne, you know, or get closer and closer to ruling the world. It means we get closer and cr- closer to being crucified, <laughs> to suffering without opening our mouths. That's the glory that's reflected in our own lives. But then we'll sit on the throne with him I mean, in some ways, we already do. We're seated in the heavenly places with Christ, how Paul talks in Ephesians too. But, but we'll be with him in glory uh, in in the resurrection as well. But, but this life, our our life as a reflection of Jesus, it's not this health and wealth sort of. What are those guys called? The the prosperity gospel. That's not it at all. Jesus had no place to lay his head. So. So our own Christian life, it, it, it takes the, the form of a cross. We're taking up our cross and following him. And, and yet the eyes of faith in, in that life would see the glory of God, would, would see all of this beauty that Isaiah is preaching here. He comes back to that theme of the, the wilderness becoming a lush garden again at the end of six and into seven. He talks about the, the haunt of jackals, which was brought up in the previous chapter, and that's transformed to a place of, of reeds and rushes. And, and we, can, we can comment more on that, but there's also, we've got about 10 minutes here. In verses eight through 10, the image changes slightly and the primary image is the the thought of a highway mm-hmm. being through mm-hmm. this wilderness. So let mm-hmm. I, mean, I think let, we can start to turn that corner. Although the way is straight, I think take <laughs> us to the to the highway. Festival. Yeah, yeah. So this there's this lush garden, but then you got to get to it. <laughs> so there so the road which was blocked by the cherubim, the road into the Garden of Eden. Now the Lord is rebuilding, and and we're going to go on that road. Now this is a really important. I was I can someone was telling me yesterday about. They had gone a few years back to Congo, and they were visiting a place in Congo. They were teaching somewhere, and a war broke out in Congo, but it was on the other side of the country, and the people there said, don't worry, there's no road from here to there, so the so the battle can't even get to us. And it was just thinking about how amazing that is, that you have a country, and there's actually physically no road from one side of the country to the other. This reminds us of the importance here of the high, there's got to be a way. The Lord has to make a way. And the Lord has now made a way for all people of all places to come into his kingdom. So we see it at Pentecost, and this is constantly happening for us, that the Lord is is building these roads where people can come uh, to rejoice in, in the fullness of his kingdom. We, we even have it in it just in every church. I mean, we should think of every congregation in our in our 
in our synod or you know our sister churches throughout the world is it's like a little on-ramp to this highway that leads to the garden of the resurrection and so the lord is making a, a way there he he is the way the truth and the life and no one comes to the father apart from christ so so wherever jesus is there is that there is that way that he's talking about here. In, in terms of the way, as Isaiah describes it here in 35, one of the, the features is that it belongs to those who the Lord has, those whom the Lord has called. The unclean are not there. It belongs to those who walk on the way. And there's this curious phrase at the end of verse eight, which I think there's some translation questions there. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. What, <laughs> That's what are, right. That's right. What are these telling us about this way? Yeah, yeah. So the unclean can't get on it, but even the fool can't get off it. <laughs> That's the the picture, and it's like um, you you just think of the person who's sort of bumbling along, and they're like they're they're always getting lost. And Isaiah saying this road is going to be so big and clear with such clear edges and hedges around protecting it that even the person who can't you can't get from here to there is not going to be able to get lost and so there's some comfort for us in that you know for for us who are this the the road we we do not stay on the road by our intelligence but rather by our faith by our baptism by our being washed and made clean by the lord and his word that's how that's how we get on the road and that's how we stay on it so isaiah says don't worry about it i you know we often this word comes up with the Christians. I don't know if I'm smart enough. You're going to talk to the atheists and, oh, they've studied their science and all this. And I just don't know if I'm smart enough to, no, it's not a matter of, it's not, that's not the question. That's not how to stay on this road. Uh, this, the, the Lord has us here by faith, by repentance. And if we have that, we are secure. The, the other feature of this road is that there's no lions, no ravenous beasts. It's a road of security and mm-hmm. safety. There's not going to be any robbers that will waylay you on this road. When the Lord puts you on this road, he's going to to keep you. I, the, the catechism talks that way, the third article again, that the Holy Spirit not only calls, gathers, enlightens us, but he, he keeps us in this Christian faith. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Luther in his commentary talks about the wolves and the lions and everything as being the false teachers. And they, he says the false teachers are always be will always be ushered out of the church by the Lord Jesus Christ. So so that uh, where the truth is, there is this safety and security. It's kind of nice. It says the ransomed or the redeemed of the Lord shall walk there. So this is the this is the place. Uh, you know, it's not those who are. It's not those who have rescued themselves that stand on this road, but the Lord. The, but those that the Lord has rescued. So we're the we're. It's like the, the picture is like a. It's like the prisoners of war being brought home. So it's the devil's wrapped us up and held us captive, but then the stronger one has come and bound the strong man, and looted his house, and now we're all walking back to home. It's like you, you got to think of like Ezra and Nehemiah returning to Jerusalem with with such shouting and great joy to be coming out of captivity and into the Lord's city into the Lord's mountain, into the holy mountain and the holy place. So we are bring, being led out of captivity. I suppose Moses out of, as he led the people out of Egypt, we're being led out of captivity by the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're following on the way that he went through death to the resurrection. And and as we come out of this captivity, we're going there with, uh, with such kind of with sure-footed confidence because the Lord is the one who has us on this way. And that, that sure-footed confidence is, is shown forth in the joy. That, that's one part of this text. I don't know if we really talk too much about, but it's, this text is dripping with it, with the joy. And it really comes through in verse 10 that as these ransomed ones are returning, they're singing, they've got everlasting joy they're obtaining gladness and joy and all sorrow and sighing flees away this road is it's just purely a joyful return i've been how, how long do we have before we're we're cut off by the end of time because I, I got a couple things on joy that i want to bring up you got three and a half minutes to tell us okay. about joy all right so this is there i've noticed this for a long time it's a, i think it's a demonic trick that the devil has tricked us into thinking that that seriousness is the same as joylessness. 
that if you're going to be a serious person, you're not going to be joyful, that laughter and hard work don't belong together. And if you see someone laughing or joyful, then you know that they're whatever they're making merry or they're mirthful or but they're not really doing anything. They're not maybe they're not serious about it or whatever. That is demonic and dangerous because the most serious business of the Christian is joy. <laughs> this is a joy in the midst of sorrow joy in the midst of trouble and the lord would have us be joyful we i i i think we gotta just disconnect this idea of seriousness and joylessness because you see it people you know they come to the lord's supper or they 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 go to study theology or they do anything that involves reverence and and there's a like okay this is reverent or this is important or this is whatever and therefore i must i must not be happy no no whenever the lord shows up doing his redeeming work this is overflowing with joy, with rejoicing, with gladness, with delight, with with happiness. It's just what happens when the Lord is there present with his grace and his mercy. And, and so this is really quite what they obtain joy and gladness. Oh, that's the thing. We say, look, it's joy, not happiness. Well, okay, but not here. It's joy and gladness. The Lord gives us joyfulness and happiness Sorrow and sighing fly away whenever the Lord is present. So th- this should set us free, I hope, to to be joyful while we go about the serious business of life and confessing the faith and everything else. You, you still got another minute and a half if you want to say more what? on joy. How fast did we do that? Paul says, uh, re- uh, rejoice in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice in the Lord always. This, And he says it from prison. Can you imagine that? Or, or Jesus says it like this. He says, a little while and I'll take it from you and the world will rejoice and you will be sorrowful, but a little while and you will see me and your joy will be full and no one can take it from you. That's the kind of joy that Jesus gives. It's unstealable joy. Un, it's in, it's, it's a, you're, you have, the joy is locked down and no one can take it from you. Oh, can you imagine, Timothy, if this is how people thought, they saw the Christians and like, well, I'll say one thing about those Christians. They're always joyful and you can't do anything to take the joy from them. I mean, suffering, Paul says, count it all joy when you suffer various trials. Life, we rejoice in this life. Death, it's a, to, die, to die is gain. To, to, be, to, be, to be persecuted, Jesus says, the prophets were persecuted before you. Rejoice, it's a blessing for you. There's nothing you can do to the Christian to take away their joy. So this insurmountable, unaffectable, untouchable joy, that's, the, that's one of the marks, at least it ought to be. According to the Bible, it is. One of the marks of the Christian life, one of the marks of the church. Yeah, the kind of joy that sings hymns in prison with Paul and Silas. <laughs> That's right. Isn't that fantastic? That's right. Wow. May wow. God give us that joy. I mean, we're going to need it because the days are only going to get darker. But as the days get darker, our joy should burn brighter. As we wait for that resurrection promised here in Isaiah chapter 35, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller is the pastor at St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas, helping us this morning with the prophet Isaiah chapter 35, verses 1 through 10. Pastor Wolfmuller, thanks for being our guest today. Always a pleasure. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.